the left says we're attacking this or attacking that, we took for granted that our kids were being taught fundamental educational um, academic subjects. They're doing something else that hasn't been done before and we probably ought to protect these kids. We're not attacking it, we're just protecting them. This week, nationwide elections across the House, Senate, and governors have our attention as we watch incredible momentum from Republicans. With federalism on the rise in our politics as of late, watching Republicans in the gubernatorial races has been really, really encouraging. In this episode, one of America's best governors, Governor Bill Lee of Tennessee, joins us to discuss his own reelect race this week and the many Republicans now in striking distance of Democrat incumbent seats. Before entering politics in 2018, Governor Lee's career was centered on his grandfather's business for over 30 years. For 24 of those years, he was president of the company and took the company's annual revenue from $20 million to $140 million. His success in business has informed his governing policy and in many respects, Tennessee is the best run state in America. Many companies, including our own Daily Wire, have resettled here. Tennessee is among the top states where businesses and individuals are moving in the wake of disastrous COVID policies around the country. His search has put the governor in a unique position of leading in a state where growth is off the charts right now. It's highlighted in the bustling, albeit Democrat-led city of Nashville. Originating under progressive leadership, we've recently seen transgender programs here in Vanderbilt Hospital, which were investigated by our own Matt Walsh. In light of that controversy, Governor Lee tells us about how he will be directly involved in protecting children from transgender indoctrination in Tennessee. We'll also discuss many of his plans to come, abortion bans, jobs throughout the state, and the places conservatives can win in the coming years. Hey, hey, and welcome. This is the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special. This show is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Thousands of my listeners have already secured their network data. Join them at expressvpn.com slash Ben. Just a quick reminder, the end of this episode will be exclusively for our Daily Wire Plus members. If you're not a member yet, click the link at the top of this episode's description. Get the full conversation with Governor Bill Lee and every one of our awesome guests. Governor Lee, thanks so much for joining the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Glad so, to be here. why don't we start off with just why Tennessee has become such a magnet. So obviously we moved our business, the main part of our business, to Nashville. And it's been an amazing move for everybody who came with us from LA. We've, I think, tripled our business since we've come here, which is a testament to both the, the leadership of our business, but also to the, the business climate here. So what makes Tennessee different? Well, we're really glad you came here, by the way. And you, you said it's been awesome for your business. I think that's the reason that we're seeing companies from all over the country decide to come to Tennessee and people from all over the country. We're one of the most moved to states in America right now. And not by individuals and by companies. Um, I ran a company for 25 years before I worked there, 35, 1,500 employees, mostly skilled tradespeople, but a business. And when I came into office, you know, it was very important to me that we created a business-friendly environment, so regulatory environment, tax environment, and that, and, and a, a workforce development strategy because those are things that had mattered to me as a business guy. Those are the things that matter to business people who create jobs and opportunity. Um, we're a really business-friendly place. What, what that means is opportunity for Tennesseans. People have the ability to access work that brings dignity and that brings value and that, that helps their family. Uh, I like to say Tennessee is a place that values opportunity and security and freedom. And those things are, you know, there are things that Americans are looking for. Um, I think Americans right now look around the country and they see things that are worrisome. They want to be reminded that America is the greatest nation in the world. They want to see places that remind them that America hadn't lost her way. And I think when they look at Tennessee, they see that. And, and a whole lot of them have decided they want to be there. Why do you think that so few politicians in so few areas of the company of the, of the country uh, seem to understand this? I mean, I came, again, from a state that has made it harder and harder and harder to do business. And this is not particularly sophisticated stuff, like make it easy to do business by removing useless regulation or lower the tax rate so that companies can actually reinvest their money in their employees and in growing their base. Now, this sort of stuff isn't super sophisticated, but a lot of politicians just don't get it. What do you think is the block? You know, you said a lot of politicians. I actually think 
politicians kind of a key word. I, I guess I am one now that I've been in office, but I don't think of myself as one. I came from the outside, and I'd never been in politics, never ran for office, never really been very involved politically. Um, was a business guy. Was also involved in issues that were very important to me and that I think are very important to people generally because of some work that I had done in, in nonprofits that really stirred my passion that ultimately led to a decision to run. But business people oftentimes are the ones who understand a business-friendly environment. And oftentimes that's not who's, that's not the politicians that you're talking about. Outsiders understand. And, you know, people talk to me a little bit about COVID and decisions that we made in the middle of COVID. And one of the things I said was it had only been a year or two from running a business. And so I could I could sit there and think, what would I think as a business owner if the government told me I had to do this or do that or I couldn't do this or couldn't do that? It, it was very helpful to have not be very far removed from running a business where people's lives are depending on it uh, to make decisions. Yeah, and one of the things that we were talking about slightly before the show started was your decision to run for office in the first place, you know, having been in the business world and how you were talking about how that, that wasn't an easy decision. Like there, there are a lot of people who grow up with this idea, I'm going to be a senator, I'm going to be president, I want to be in politics, an elected office, and who never actually hold a job. The, the Biden administration famously has very few people who have ever actually run a business in the administration. Uh, and you know, it's, I think there, there may be a difference in kind between people who actually go into the so-called real world before they go into politics and people who are sort of the professional political class. Yeah, I think it is very helpful, certainly. If you've run a business, you know about how to manage a budget. That's a big deal. Um, for a governor, one of the most important things I should do is manage the budget because you remember that you're managing other people's money. It's not government's money. It's not the state's money. It's the taxpayer's money that they have paid into the state, and then we turn around and spend it on their behalf. But remembering that, you know, if you're in business and you you don't manage your budget, you go broke. It's pretty simple. If, you, if, you're, in, if you're in government and you don't manage your budget, the people pay. They have to be taxed uh, to make up for the difference because the government's not going to go broke. So remembering that, it's really, it's really important. But, you know, it was a hard decision for me. Uh, but frankly, I was at a spot in my life. I, I had a tragedy in my life that God used in a very powerful way to cause me to think about things that mattered, things that don't matter. Um, I got very involved with my kids in nonprofit work, work in first out of the country, you know, serving the poor, and then got involved in the inner city here, in this, in our city here. Uh, got involved in a Reentry program, got involved in nonprofit efforts besides running my business, which was a very purposeful, meaningful job. Um, nonprofits that touched that touched government in some ways, but most importantly, touched people's lives. That intersection of people's lives and government and the influence it had and my uh, experience in the private sector caused me to say, you know what, this might be worth doing. This is a valuable way to impact the lives of people. And th that's how I ultimately decided to run. I mean, be being a politician is a very hard life for, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is sort of the practical reason. I know a lot of people who are in politics professionally. It means a lot of travel. It means a lot of time on the road. It means a lot of conversations with people you might not necessarily like, both politically and, and in the donor class. I mean, it means doing a lot of stuff that, that normal people wouldn't necessarily want to do. And then it also means having to compromise. And it means having to actually try to reify broad ideas. The easiest thing that, what, what I say to politicians all the time is I have an easy job. I get to say what I think for a living. I don't actually have to implement any of that stuff except inside my own business. Yeah. Uh, for, for you, you know, you actually have to take these big ideas that you have about the world and principles that you have, and you have to somehow try to get 80% of, of what you want. And then you get ripped on by people like me for not getting 100% of, of what you want. So moving from a world where you're not used to that, where, where it's just running a business, being able to say what you think, involve yourself in principles that you like, to the world of politics, how has that affected you and changed you, do you think? A couple things. I, you know, when you're in business, you actually do have to compromise. I mean, you run your business the way you want to, but you have customers. And there's a lot of negotiation with contracts and or the way you run your business, the way you treat your customers. You you don't just do whatever you want. Well, you can. You, you, that's be the bankrupt. That's the difference. Fast, but, but, yeah. you won't, but you won't stay in business long. 
So the principle of, of compromise and working together with people for the overall benefit, it, it still exists. But I think that uh, you're right. You have to step back sometimes. You make decisions that people don't understand because you, you do actually understand the big picture of your own state, for example, and the politics, politics of your state. And, and you make decisions that you think are going to be ultimately in the best interest of the people. I, I will say that one of the things I try to do or try not to do, frankly, is ever ultimately compromise a core principle or a core value for the sake of getting something done. Um, I, I talk a lot of times about the toxic world we live in, politics and civility, and how it is that we should treat people differently in spite of the differences in the way that we see the world. Um, you don't have to, in order to be civil, you don't have to be moderate. You don't have to compromise in a moderating way. You can be very clear in your principles and your values and what you understand to be truth and never waver from that and, and yet be entirely civil and treat people in a way that recognizes that even if they view it entirely different than you do, they, the dignity of them as a human being is very valuable. And I think those two can exist. I don't, I don't, we don't see a lot in public life these days, but um, it's possible. I mean, I think this is one of the areas where you know, it may be different being uh, not only a politician, but a person who's in touch with real people. There, there's been this online political world, which dominates so much of the yeah. media conversation, yeah. the, the Twitter world, the blue checks. And then there's what you actually do, which is you have to go out and talk to people and compromise and, and deal with people on the other side of the aisle. And because you know, our institutions have now become, as you've all of in suggest, sort of platforms for, for becoming famous rather than an actual institution yeah. that, you're, that you're supposed to do a job within, it, it's led to this tremendous political polarization. You've been able to get amazing things done here in the state of Tennessee without being alienating, without, without having to, to be you know, rhetorically insulting, without doing a lot of the things that I think people are looking for from politicians these days. Why do you think that is? That's just because you're not a very online person? Like, how does that work exactly? <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's who I am. I've tried to live my life, all of my life, before I ever became into politics in a way that uh, recognizes the dignity of people. And I love people. And every, you know, it's a, it's a, a faith principle. There are scriptural principles that I try to adhere to doesn't mean I'm a perfect guy. doesn't mean I'm not broken and sinful and, you know, uh, mistake, uh, a mistake-laden person. It just means that I value people and relationships and, and human dignity. And I can vehemently disagree with you, but I can still treat you with dignity and respect. That's kind of the way I was raised and I decided I wanted to continue to try to operate that way. It's really hard. Like, and I don't do well at it all the time. I'm not, I'm not the expert on civility. Um, I just like thinking about it a lot. And I think our world could use a lot more of it. So, you know, one of the areas that became very controversial during your tenure, obviously, was you mentioned earlier, your handling of COVID. You know, there's this vast gap that opened in the country between the states that, quote unquote, did it right. And according to the media, this would be New York and California that shut down early and stayed shut down, pushed vax mandates, pushed mask mandates, shut down the schools and, and all the rest. And Tennessee, which didn't get enough credit, the, the kind of credit it should have, for taking the line that you took, which was, we're going to try and keep everything as open as humanly possible. We'll get the vaccinations to the people who need them. But in the end, we're going to have to rely on, on people's ability to make good choices for themselves. Maybe you can talk about yeah. how you formulated that yeah. policy. And part of it was the background that I had and the backdrop from being in the private sector earlier, wrestling with, gosh, am I going to shut people's businesses down? Like, walk in there and say, you have to close, even though you don't think it's in the best interest of you or your people or... Um, that was very that was very much on my mind every time we made decisions. Now at the same time, you know, early on in this thing, when you ha had no information and people saying, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in your state might die if you don't make the right decisions. Early on, we all wrestled with what in the world is coming? Is there a tsunami coming? And we have an obligation to protect to protect folks if we can. 
But pretty soon we figured out, hey, this is, uh, this is a lot of lack of information. We don't know what's happening here, but it looks like the best way to approach this is trust people. Um, I am a person who kind of says, people ought to decide for themselves. And you ought to decide if you want to. If, if, if you don't want to get COVID, then don't go out. But it's not because I'm, I'm going to make you stay in. Um, the whole idea that you trust your people, you trust your businesses, you do recognize that lives are at stake here, but so are livelihoods, which are, which equate to lives at the end of the day in many ways, uh, the, the, the implications of wrecking livelihoods. So it was hard and there was a lot of pressure and there was a lot of pushback and uh, a lot of walk in the hall um, personally and just saying, gosh, are we doing the right thing here? Wrestling through with it. But at the end of the day, I, I, I decided we can trust Tennesseans more than we can trust anybody else, frankly, because they know best. I don't know best. The medical community doesn't know best. They know best for themselves. I, I have that philosophy about children, about education, about healthcare people know best for themselves and should be given the freedom um, to make those decisions. So in a second, I want to ask you what it was like trying to coordinate with the federal government on the one hand and then on the local level, because obviously there are pretty significant disagreements with right. the city of Nashville right. inside of Tennessee on COVID. I'm going to ask you about that in just one second. First, let's talk about how you protect your online activity. Have you noticed that big tech companies are masquerading as privacy companies? Every now and again, they'll release a security feature that does some good, but collecting and selling off your data is in big tech's nature. I mean, it's how they make their money. They can't stop themselves from looking at what you do online. Again, that's how they make their money. To protect myself against big tech's prying eyes, I use ExpressVPN. When you use the ExpressVPN app on your computer or your phone, you're hiding your unique IP address, which means websites can't find your real location or track what you do online. In addition, ExpressVPN encrypts and reroutes 100% of your online activity so your internet provider, Wi-Fi admin, and hackers can't see it. The best part is how easy it is to use. It takes one click, and you can protect all your devices. One ExpressVPN subscription covers up to five devices at the same exact time, so you can protect your entire family too, which is why ExpressVPN is rated number one by CNET, Wired, Tech Radar, and countless others. I've been using ExpressVPN myself for years. My internet data is my business. It's not anybody else's business, so I use ExpressVPN. You should too. Get the VPN I trust to protect my own online privacy when big bad tech is at the door. Visit expressvpn.com slash Ben. Find out how you can get three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Ben, expressvpn.com slash Ben to learn more. Alrighty, so let's talk about how you make these decisions because there, there's, a very, there's a push very early on from the media and, and actually from the White House that you got to follow the science. You know, the, the, the scientific experts and they're the decision makers and this shouldn't be political. And it seemed to me at the time that pretty quickly it was clear that it was political, meaning that, that your job as an elected official is to balance all of the competing interests. And the only interest is not how many people get the infection. There are other competing interests, including are you going to destroy every business in your state? Should kids go to school? What are the risk factors? What are the rewards? And pretending that these trade-offs don't exist was a very easy way of avoiding responsibility. So what was coordination with the federal government like? What sort of information were they providing? Were they being meticulous and exact? Was it kind of sloppy? How did that work? Well, it changed. You know, at first it was one administration, then it changed to another. Um, I will say most of the interaction initially with the Trump administration was very much... Um, we're going to give you advice, but you need to do what you want. That really was the message. It was very clear information, and they were they were not um, they were not shy from giving you their recommendations and their advice to the CDC and everything else. But there was a general understanding that states should decide for themselves what they should do, and I thought that was the right thing to do. I tended to say decision making at the local level as much as possible is what we ought to do. And, and there, were, there were reasons why we allowed local decision making to take place. For example, masks. I allowed local county mayors to make the decision about mandates for their own communities. We did not do a statewide mask mandate. But I didn't stop them from doing a mandate either. Um, I figured the folks in that community, they're elected officials, they, they can decide what they want to do there. It, but it was tough, right? There, there, sometimes those people at the local level make decisions that you don't think are in the best interest of the state. And it's, there are times when you have to intervene there. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of dialogue, a lot of 
understanding a lot of bringing people together. I'm a convener. Um, we worked really closely with the Tennessee Hospital Association, for example. Our group of hospitals, every state has them. We had an unusually good relationship there, worked really hard with you know, municipal and county mayors with regular phone calls. I, I think just communicating, letting folks know, and struggling together with them was the best way forward. So when one of the big decisions that came up for pretty much all the states when it came to COVID was what exactly to do with the schools. So in California, they shut down the schools. They shut them down incredibly hard. I mean, they shut down the private schools. They shut down everything in California. It's one of the reasons why we moved our company. We moved my family. And they were, they were shutting down like the public parks. They were, they were shutting down turnoffs off of Mulholland Drive in the, in the apparently mistaken impression that people were going to gather en masse in five-foot square spaces and, and congregate with one another and just spit on each other. But, you know, they, one of the big issues obviously was what happened with education. We were told for a couple of years by the so-called experts that kids were in severe danger, even though it was pretty clear statistically this was not so. We were told that kids had to be masked, even though kids are not good at wearing masks. We were told that, that none of this would have any real effect on, on how kids were educated, that kids not being able to see human faces for a year and a half would, would make no difference. And we were told that if they weren't in school, you know, they'd catch up. It would be no big deal. Tennessee kept the schools as open as humanly possible. Why don't you talk about what your school yeah. policy was and how you handled that? So we... Um at first, like everybody, didn't know what was coming. We closed the schools in the spring of 2020, right? So Mar mid-March, April, May. And then the more we looked and the more we understood and the more we watched, the more we realized that, in fact, you know, statistically, the vast number of children were not getting COVID. And those that were, it was not serious for them. Now, there are outliers to that. We all understand that. I, I spent, you know, I, I looked at COVID hospitalizations, pediatric in this state. I probably looked at that chart every single day. I wanted to know what was happening there and if what I was hearing was true or what the, statistically was really happening in our state. It became evident to me that with a little bit of work, we could keep kids safe. And so we, most of the school districts in our state opened for that fall um, and stayed open from that day forward. We had a couple of big school districts that didn't. Obviously, the, the statute allows for district authority to make decisions about that. I say obviously, in our state, that's how it operated. So those, those districts closed, but the vast majority of our schools were open. And we worked really hard to provide all of the you know, all of the equipment and the necessary tools to keep schools safe for kids. Each district had different rules about distancing and that sort of thing. But the further we went, the more we realized, hey, this is probably not going to be a huge health issue for kids. And the alternative of shutting schools down, we knew was going to be a huge health issue. I mean, parents would tell you that, teachers would tell you that. Um, and so we were really glad that we, that we, open schools up. Now, I'll tell you the other thing we did. We knew this learning loss was coming. So I actually called a special session of the General Assembly in January of 2021 to address learning loss so that it was, we didn't have to wait till the end of session, which mean we couldn't address it that summer. So we called a special session. We put in place these learning camps and summer schools and tutoring programs for the summer. We had, um, kids all over the state go through that programming in, in the summer. And our scores have shown, and we're pretty encouraged about the fact that we kind of hit that learning loss thing early. We think we're going to have better outcomes. So uh, in a second, I want to ask you about the education system in the state of Tennessee, because obviously one, one of the things we're watching nationally is a parent's revolt against the way that a lot of the public schools are run. I want to ask you about that in a second. First, it's important that everybody get life insurance because the simple fact is that when you plot, your family is still going to need some source of revenue and income. We all hope we're never going to need life insurance, but mortgage payments, childcare, other expenses, they don't disappear when you're gone. Life insurance through your workplace might not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. Since life insurance typically gets more expensive as you age, now would be the time to buy because you are literally getting older every single day. Policy Genius gives you a smarter way to find and buy the right coverage for you and your family. Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their tech makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from top companies in just a few clicks and find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 17 bucks per month for 500 grand in coverage. And Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find options that offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid those unnecessary medical exams. 
They're not incentivized to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance, there are no added fees, and your personal information remains private. There's a reason they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head on over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description. Get your free life insurance quotes. See how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Protect yourself. Protect your family from the vicissitudes of life. Go check them out right now at policygenius.com. Let's talk about the education system more broadly for a second. So there's been a big battle that's been going on nationally about what to do about public schools. Parents are suddenly waking up to the fact that a lot of school boards were run by activists. They're waking up to the fact that a lot of schools were, were being created for, for almost indoctrinative purposes uh, by, by local school boards and by associations like the American Federation of Teachers and the National Education Association. Uh, there's been a lot of focus on ideas that, that folks don't like, like teaching of, of history that in, in ways that denigrate the United States and treat it as though it's the font head of all evil, teaching of sexual orientation and gender identity to, to children, uh, ascientific theories and, and silly theories for, for adults even, but being crammed down on, on kids. Now, how do you handle questions of education? How do you think education ought to be handled? I was a parent, and now I'm a grandparent, so I kind of think of education from a parent's perspective. Um, married to a teacher, which is a great, it, it's also a great perspective. Um, you know, I, I was talking to Glenn Youngkin just last night, and I think his race was the sort of national exposure to the fact that, hey, there's something really um, at play here that parents ought to be tuned into. Like, maybe they haven't been paying attention in some places that they should be. And it really opened up and shined a light on what's happening in, across America. Um, I tend to believe that parents are the best deciders for all things about their kids. I mean, they, it, 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 unless that parent's making a harmfully, dis, you know, a, a an obvious harmful decision for that child. But parents are the deciders when it comes to education, where their kids should go to school, what their kids should be learning, what they should not be learning, what they should be exposed to and not exposed to. Those are all things that a parent should have the ultimate ability to decide and, and have transparency so they actually know what's being taught in schools. That's starting to happen around America. It's starting to happen in Tennessee. We, we you know, said that teaching critical race theory, for example, is illegal. Now, we'll have to figure out how to make certain that that happens as the, the law passes and then the implementation of that going forward. But I'm also a person who's, in my education strategy, uh, it's very focused on the parent's ability to make a choice for their kid. I'm a strong believer in school choice. I mentored a kid in the inner city before I ever got involved in politics. I worked in an inner city at-risk youth program, met this kid through at a lunch one day, get, became intrigued by him. His, his mom was in prison, his, didn't know his dad, and uh, lived in a very difficult situation. I decided to spend one evening a week, every week, with that kid for five years I did that. And we obviously became very close. I learned an awful lot about a lot of things. But one of them that I learned about was his education. And he was failing every subject in his school. I uh, worked with his grandmother, who was his, who was his uh, caretaker, to get him moved into a public charter school. And his trajectory entirely changed. And I, I found myself realizing that Different kids have different needs, and different schools serve those needs. And a parent is the best decider for that. And we ought to give every kid choices for education if we want to have the best outcomes. Uh, that's been my guiding philosophy. Look, public schools are, are the number one way we educate our kids. We've invested heavily in them here. We have been smart about it. But I also believe that public charters, and we have education savings account program here, uh, we ought to give parents choices. Yeah, the, the fact that there's so many people on, on the other side of the aisle who don't want to do that seems somewhat shocking. And it's hard not to see it as, I, I don't like to, uh, to talk about the motives of, of people, but it, but it seems hard not to see that as at least tied to the support of, of the teachers' unions in, in sort of corrupt political fashion, because it's so obvious that kids should not be locked into schools that are failing. And, and it's also perfectly obvious that 
that giving those kids more options is what's going to allow them to, to get out of poverty. If education is the chief ladder by which people are going to move from one rung to another on the economic scale or on the success scale, then keeping them locked into these areas where the schools are bad and then just throwing money at them in the, in the apparently pervasive belief that just this is a monetary problem. And I can tell you, I went to LAUSD. LAUSD is the second biggest school district in America. Uh, and they, they were spending, when I was going to school there, somewhere between nine dollars and $10,000 a year per student. And the results were awful. And they kept upping the amount of money that they were spending per student. And it didn't seem to matter one iota because, again, if you just keep throwing money at the same people to do the same things, they will continue to do the same things, only more of them. So, you know, it, wh why do you think there is that opposition? You know, I, I'm, you said you continue to be surprised. I really do, too. Um, it's because, evidently, they're more interested in a system than they are in a student. Because here's the thing. In our, for example, in our state, we have, uh, I think, a, 106 public charter schools that serve about 42, 43,000 students. 91% of those students are minority students in the most challenged economic zip codes in our state. And yet there is serious pushback to eliminate that choice from those students. I, that that's hard for me to believe that those minority students should be, that that choice should be taken away from them, particularly when we see the outcomes for those students better statistically as a result of those educational choices. It's a little surprising to me. It, it ends up reminding me that these decisions or this pushback is really not considering that child. It's, got, it's something else. I don't know what it is, whatever, whatever reason they're pushing back against it. But I got into this thing about school choice because of my experience with a very low-income, disadvantaged kid and the personal, the personal change I saw in his life and my, real, my realization that we got tens of thousands of those kids in this state. The, you know, the ESA program, the Education Savings Account program we put in place, same motivation behind it. Why should the low-income minority children in our schools, districts, in our toughest environments, why should they be the only ones that do not have access to a school of their choice? The education savings account gives them that access. That money that is taxpayer dollar follows that kid to the school of their choice. It, if you really care about a kid, and you don't care about the status quo or the way it's always been done or the system, uh, you have to consider that as an option. And look, at the same time, we just put a billion dollars, and for our state, that's, all, that, that's a you know, statistically significant increase, a billion-dollar increase in our public school system going forward because they're, they're incredibly important. We need, to, we need to fund traditional schools as well. well speaking of kids, one of the issues that obviously has come up a lot here at Daily Wire, our own Matt Walsh, has been leading the charge in trying to prevent uh, the attempts to, to use what I call sex-denying health care on children. It's called more frequently, uh, euphemistically, gender-affirming health care with children's ranges from everything from socially affirming the idea that a boy can be a girl to hormone cross-sex hormone treatments, puberty blockers that may have permanent effects for kids, all the way on up to double mastectomies, phalloplasties, vaginoplasties for, for, for minors. And Matt uncovered, along with some other reporters, what was going on at Vanderbilt Medical Center where, where some of this stuff was being done uh, to minors, 16, 17-year-old kids. Uh, you know, what, what is your opinion on what the state's involvement should be in yeah. preventing this sort of mutilation of kids? Yeah. I commend Matt for his work, and I, I told him so. Um, whenever we can, whenever we can expose and make transparent um, things that are going on that people ought to know about, that's a good thing. Um, it's sad mostly for me. I mean, uh, as a dad, a grandfather, or someone who watches kids navigate their way through the really hard years of 12, 13, 14, 15, I mean, that's a, those are really hard years for children. Of all, of all types, for everybody trying to figure out their way. And it's really sad to me that uh, these life-altering decisions, frankly, by adults who are making that decision on behalf of that child, because the child's not capable of making those life-altering decisions for themselves. We all know that. Um, it, it's sad. It shouldn't happen. It's wrong on every level. 
Uh, I think you'll see it clearly addressed legislatively in this state. Um, we will address it here, but we think that it'll probably be addressed across the country in a greater way. I think most, I certainly know most Tennesseans, I think most Americans realize that this shouldn't be happening for kids. And uh, it's not going to happen here. Now, when did you first become aware of, of these sorts of problems arising in a state like Tennessee? I mean, it must have been shocking because Tennessee is a pretty conservative state. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because a lot of times you you might hear about something or you think you know about something, but uh, you think it's so small or it's very, um, I don't know, it's marginalized or it's complicated and you don't know the facts. And then as you look closer and closer and the facts are and the facts become real, and you realize, hey, this is a problem. This is something that most people don't really imagine is think is happening. And then they figure out it's happening. They go, you know, we really just ought to thoughtfully stop it. Yeah, and when when you look at the education system as well, again, this ties back into sort of the educational standards because the fact is that a lot of these schools are including books on the library shelves that are yep. wildly inappropriate yep. for children, or you have teachers in the classroom who are teaching gender theories that are completely at odds with both science and decency, you know, it, it, what sort of state pressure should be exerted on the schools? Yeah, and most importantly, not odds with, uh, at odds with parents. I mean, so I've got a, you know, a book um, delivered to my office from a particular elementary school library in Tennessee, and I, I, I sat there and read the book, and it was shocking to me. Like, this really isn't a library, and you hear about this, or you know, you begin to hear about this sort of thing, and then you find out that it actually is really there. And there's a part of me that says, "Gosh, if the parents in that county all read this book and knew that their kid in third grade, second grade, whatever, could read it, we didn't. There'd be, there'd be a, a revolt about that. that. That book would not be in that library. So we ought to make a law that says." You know, it's unfortunate we have to, right? It's unfortunate that the stuff is even there, but there it is in some rural county in Tennessee. Uh, so that what we should do is make a law that makes it possible and actually allowable for parents to have a, a transparent look at every book. There's a process. If you don't like a book, you follow a process that goes through, you know, a process, an appropriate process to remove it or not, or have it not removed. Um, there are there are times we just sit back and go, gosh, it's a shame we have to. It's a shame we have to engage in this stuff. And so oftentimes, you know, the left says we're attacking this or attacking that. What we really are doing, at least that's the way I view this, is we're just protecting and preserving and this quality of life that we've sometimes taken for granted. I think in education, we we took for granted that our kids were being taught fundamental educational um, academic subjects. We just took for granted that that's what teachers would be doing and that's what school systems would be doing. And then all of a sudden you find out, you know what, they're doing something else that hasn't been done before. And we probably ought to protect these kids and make sure that they're, uh, that, that, that we're kind of upholding what has always been true we're not attacking it, we're just protecting it. I mean, the game on the part of the social left on this sort of stuff is always really amazing because it's it's not happening. It's good that it's happening. Why are you noticing that it's happening, right? Like, yeah, they, they, yeah, that's that's yeah. always the three-step. Yeah. No, 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 this, the, there's no critical race theory right. being taught in schools. Right. No, there is critical race theory, and it's right. very important that it be taught in schools. Right. But stop noticing that it's being taught in schools because this makes you a racist that right. you're noticing it. Right, and the then when you, say, with, when you say, you know what, I think we probably ought to stop doing that, then, man, then it really, then it, the, it really, the hit really comes. So in a second, I want to ask you about the relationship between being governor and the White House and how, how you navigate that relationship, particularly with President Biden in office. First, with everything going on in the world right now, you know, a war in Ukraine and a collapsing economy and all the rest, you could really use a good night's sleep. That's why you need to check out Helix Mattress. I've had my Helix Mattress for years at this point, and I really can't sleep on anything else. I mean, when I go to Tennessee, it's very difficult for me to sleep. Helix has several different mattress models to choose from. They've got soft, medium, and firm mattresses. Mattresses great for cooling you down if you sleep hot. Mattresses great for spinal alignment, prevent morning aches and pains, even a Helix Plus mattress for plus-size sleepers. If you're nervous about buying a mattress online, you don't have to be. Helix has a sleep quiz. It matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress, because why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? I took that Helix quiz. It matched me with a 
model that happens to be firm but breathable because if I sleep on too soft a mattress, it hurts my back. I need it, I need it breathable because I tend, to, I tend to heat up at night. I love the mattress. My wife loves the mattress as well. If you're looking for a mattress, go to helixsleep.com Ben. Take their two-minute sleep quiz. Find the perfect mattress for your body and sleep type. Your mattress will come right to your door for free. Plus, Helix has a 10-year warranty. You can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will because, honestly, it's a great mattress and it's made for you, so why, why exactly would you turn that thing back in? Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. Their financing options and flexible payment plans make it so a great night's sleep is never far away. For a limited time, Helix is offering up to 350 bucks off all mattress orders plus two free pillows for our listeners. That's their best offer yet. It's not going to last long. Hurry on over to helixsleep.com slash Ben. With Helix, better sleep starts right now. Okay, so you're governor of a, of a major state. The president of the United States is not of your party. Uh, he has made clear repeatedly that he gets very angry at, at various governors who refuse to do his bidding on a wide variety of issues, ranging from things like banning sex-denying health care to, to you know, school, issues of schooling to COVID. H- how do you deal with, with a White House that is you know, routinely pretty brusque about how it treats governors? Yeah. Um, I remember watching the... A pre, one, of, one of the press briefings uh, when COVID was still active, and I don't even remember exactly what the issue was about. It had to do with mandates, I think, vaccine mandates. And, and the president said um, uh, to those governors who don't want to do this, we will move them out of the way. And I remember thinking, he's talking to me. Like, I don't, <laughs> like, I don't, I, I don't think that's the right thing for Tennesseans. I don't think Tennesseans want that. I don't think that's what we're going to do here. And yet, um, kind of, he's saying, I'm going to push the governor aside and mandate this thing anyway. Uh, that was really the first time I'd seen that happen. And I found myself thinking, you know, that's not the way it works in this country. Like, we are, uh, well, there is a 10th Amendment. And there are rights and states have the authority to make decisions about in the best interest of their people. And that's how it works. And, you know, if the people of that state don't like it, then they get an, an elect, they get elected officials that operate the way they want them to. And, and if they really don't like it and their elected officials aren't, well, then they go to another state where it's functioning the way they would like it to function. That's, we are a collection of states that have an enormous amount of power, uh, most of which is delegated to the states. And so you realize that you're dealing with um, a federal government that doesn't see it the same way that you do. And so you push back and you push back uh, uh, on a regular basis, whether it's the issues you've brought up, what schools, children, healthcare, COVID, and, and and you've seen states collectively come together Attorneys general of states, um, governors. I'm I'm very engaged in Republican Governor Association. I'm on the executive committee. I actually chaired the public policy committee of that group, which really means that we we convene governors around policy and around how Republican governors will respond to um, policy, particularly as it comes from the federal government and how it impacts individual states. There's a lot of power in the collective force of, there are 28 Republican governors right now. There might be 31 or 32 by in a, in a few weeks. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity to push back on the federal government when they're overreaching, which they've done in profound ways in the last two years. Uh, that's been our strategy, pushback. You know, well, this is one of the areas where I, I really am hopeful, and maybe it's because I moved from a blue state to a, to a red state, and now my company's located in another red state. But you know, the, the, my, my hope for the country was, was, I would say, pretty dim when I was living in California because the, the state government there tended to mirror whatever the priorities of the federal government were at the time. But living in a state that is capable of disagreeing with the federal government and having a business in a state that disagrees with the federal government, uh, it seems to me that the, the real hope for the country going forward is not going to be top-down diktats from the federal government, no matter who's in charge of the federal government, that the real hope may, in fact, lie with the states. You know, we spend an enormous yeah. amount of time in politics focusing on the national level, on the Senate and the House and the president. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But, but it seems to me that the real hope for the preservation of the country is going to lie in 
the laboratories of democracy that exist in these different places. And you can see what the results are in these places, which is why, as you mentioned at the top of the show, you're seeing effectively mass migration to this entire region of the country. I mean, the only area of the country that's seen demographic growth in terms of population growth over the course of the last 10 years has been the South in the United States. It's, it's, it's nowhere else. I mean, the Northeast is emptying out. You're seeing the, the West empty out back toward the, the Midwest and, and toward the South. And that's because different models of governance matter. And I think it became most evident in the last in the last two or three years, right? People all across the country, frankly, have seen clearly it matters who governs, particularly in the state house. Um, and I think it's I think it's why you are about to potentially. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks? But there's a very good possibility you're going to have a Republican governor in Oregon. Um, well, let me just say this. In the last 25 years, I think there have been six, five or six Democrat incumbent governors flipped in the last 25 years. This year, there easily could be five or six this one year. Um, I think that's because Americans saw the differences in states that were run in, with conservative approaches. And, and you got five or six of those states that may end up and that are traditionally, you know, Democrat states that may end up being uh, run by a Republican governor. Yeah, well, one of the things that's amazing about that is Republicans, it, it feels like in, in many states, not all states, but it seems like in, in many states, Republicans have done a better job of picking their gubernatorial candidates than, than some of their Senate candidates. Obviously, you look at some, some of these states, that, like my sleeper pick for this election cycle is Lee Zeldin taking out Kathy Hochul in New York, which I think is actually... I think people are underestimating the possibility of that happening. Minnesota is now running yep. within a very narrow margin. Michigan is running within a very narrow margin. New Mexico is suddenly maybe running in, in yep. a narrow margin. There, there's a Nevada, lot of, Wisconsin, uh, Oregon. You've got, yeah, there's a lot of states that folks, especially the last two weeks, it's really becoming evident that they're in play. And um, I think you're right. You know, local... It happens at the local. The more local you get, the more, the more valuable it is, and um, governorships are important. I mean, one of the things that you're starting to see uh, is even some independents and, and well, many independents, but even some people on the left are beginning to look at the model of democratic governance in, in these states, and they're starting to to get nervous. I mean, again, New York is a great example of this, where people are upset about crime and people are upset about taxation and people are upset about a wide variety of issues, including COVID vax mandates and all the rest. Mm -hmm. And the governor of the state is going in debate and basically saying, I don't even know why you're worried about any of this. She, she infamously said to, to Lee Zeldin, I don't know why you're so worried about crime. Meanwhile, people are getting pushed in front of subways yeah. in New York City. You're, you're seeing it in, in cities also. I mean, Los Angeles, where I used to live, where our company used to be located. Shank Uyghur, who is a far left guy on the Young Turks, he said, I don't understand why there are homeless people everywhere and there's crime everywhere. And, and he's endorsing the former Republican, Rick Caruso, in, in that race. It seems like uh, the, the left has pushed so far so fast that now the backlash is coming. Yeah, and there's another thing. Uh, besides the issues of crime, which are incredibly important, and but economics matter to people, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that, you know, what your back pocket, your family's bank account, your income... They look at a state like Tennessee, and I'll, you know, here's here's some facts that are interesting, and they're not just for Tennessee. They're they're typically in conservatively fiscally managed states. We are the lowest tax per capita state in America. That that hits your back pocket. Every person that lives in this state, I, I, I tell every time, everywhere I go, hey, if you're a citizen of Tennessee, as a percentage of your personal income. You have the lowest tax rate in the country of all 50 states. We have the lowest debt per capita of any state in America. We have right now the highest performing uh, economy of all 50 states. Tennessee's economy is the best in the country at the moment. The lowest debt per capita, the lowest tax per capita, and we have surpluses that we are spending on things like infrastructure and education and we're we're spending our surplus dollars wisely into the things that matter to Tennessee and broadband expansion, road building, um, conservative fiscal policy works. And it powerfully impacts people's personal finances and people move for that alone. I mean you can 
talk about all kind of social issues or this or that, but when your tax rates are going to be lower, and people that come from California to Tennessee get a big raise, I mean, a big raise, and uh, people that come from any state with an income tax that comes to a state like Tennessee that has zero income tax, uh, they get a they get a big raise. So the economics of fiscally conservatively managed states very powerful. I mean, it seems like and it seems like that gap is is only going to grow because as as these bluer states or the purplish leaning blue states empty of of red people and those red people tend to move back toward you know, more conservative states, the bluer states are just going to govern more blue and they're going to get to be worse places to live. And then you really are courting a serious backlash even in the blue states. And that's what, that's definitely what it feels like this, this election cycle. I mean, you were mentioning that Republicans could pick up four or five seats in, in governor's houses. I mean, how big do you think the red wave is, is going to be this year? Yeah, I, I, I don't know that. I, mean, <laughs> I certainly, um, I am fo- most focused on governor's races because I am involved in that. I'm involved in, in the RGA. And like I said, it, from the governor's standpoint, we've never, seen the, we've never seen an election like this with the overturning of that many incumbent governors. Potentially, it's not, I don't know, but if it equates to uh, the Senate and the House, it'll be, it'll be major because the governors are, if that's an example of what's going to happen, it, it could be big. So in a second, I want to ask you, let's assume for a second that the Republicans are able to take back the House, able to take back the Senate. What can they actually do at the federal level to remove power from the federal government and send that power back to the states? We'll get to that in just one moment. First, let's talk about an amazing gift that you can get for yourself or your family. If you're like me, you've most likely got boxes of old media. We're talking photos and VHS tapes and slides collecting dust in your attic or garage. Worse, they're wasting away. You need to preserve those recorded moments so they're safe forever. And this is exactly what Legacy Box does for you. Trusted by over 1 million families, Legacy Box is the simplest and safest way to digitize all of your aging videotapes, camcorder tapes, film reels, and pictures, preserving them forever. This holiday season, my listeners can get early access to Legacy Box's best sale of the year at LegacyBox.com slash Shapiro. Send in those old VHS and camcorder tapes, film, and photos. Their team will send everything back on a thumb drive, DVD, or cloud, digitally preserving your memories forever. Every kit includes everything you need to safely pack and send your records. These irreplaceable moments can be easily viewed, shared, and passed on for future generations. My parents, I got this for them, I think, twice. I got it for my own family. My parents had in their garage a bunch of old film reels, but they don't have a projector, and that film was just falling apart. We sent it in, and suddenly I'm able to watch tape of my parents, their grandparents. So it's, it's amazing stuff. This holiday, relive your most important memories. For a limited time only, take advantage of early access to Legacy Box's best sale of the year. Visit LegacyBox.com Shapiro. Shop Legacy Box's Black Friday sale. That's LegacyBox.com Shapiro for an irresistible deal. LegacyBox.com Shapiro. Okay, so let's talk about, you know, you're the governor of the state. Obviously, the federal government has been, over the course of the last century, agglomerating more and more power uh, at the center of government. There needs to be a reversal. And, and some of that has happened through osmosis, I mean, just just effectually speaking, there was no way for the federal government to run everything during COVID. And so for the first time in a very long time, people started to look at how various states were handling various topics. And we're starting to see this also with regard to abortion law, which I want to ask you about in a second. But let's say that the Republicans are able to, to take the House, take the Senate, um, and let's say even moving forward, take the presidency. The Republicans have power. What exactly should they be doing at the federal level? Should they be attempting to make federal policy for all the states, or should be they really focused on systemic changes that delegate power back to the states? I think that it, it kind of depends on what those leaders are actually like. So I, I don't know what all of the Republican leadership will look like uh, at the federal level, because that it's not, you know, that's not I'm, not, I'm not at the federal level. But if, in fact, Republicans will be conservative. And what I mean by that is, is we'll think through the sort of fundamental principles of um, governance from a conservative standpoint, which, which would, in effect, say that the states should decide the vast majority of things except for those powers that are specifically delegated to the federal government. And that, that's very clear. It's very constitutionally clear. I, and by the way, I, I, I think we, the erosion of the, of the adherence to the principles of the Constitution, part of the problem that we're facing with the federal government's uh, become bigger and bigger. If, in fact, there's a re- realization by the Republican federal majority that the states are the best decider, I think that's, uh, you know, this country will be much stronger. It'll be much better 
Um, it'll be much better for its people. And the philosophy and the idea of democracy will actually be playing out. And that's, I mean, that's good for America. So I want to ask you also about abortion policy. So obviously for the first time in my lifetime, for sure, um, but in half a century, uh, the states actually have the power now to, to make law with regard to protecting unborn human beings. And that was always sort of a talking point for Republicans, but it never actually had to be effectuated. Uh, and now the rubber hits the road because Roe versus Wade has been overturned and it's all now back at the, at the state level. So you're the governor of a state. How, how exactly do you handle the abortion issue? Obviously very fraught. A lot of people are, are very animated by, by, by this particular issue. So what, what's the best way to handle that issue at the state level? You know, sometimes um, you're faced with an issue that, at least for me personally, um, that really is not political. And I say that for me personally because for a long time, I have been one who believes that it's, it, 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 it should not be happening that we take the lives of unborn children. I served on, a, on the board of a crisis pregnancy center, a women's health clinic, probably 25 years ago. And I've always believed that somewhere, somehow this country took a wrong turn when it decided that uh, the lives of children were not actually lives of children if, if they weren't born. And that somehow that narrative took hold. And so I just have very strong personal beliefs about that. And I'm I'm not apologetic about that. I just am not, as you've probably picked up on, I'm not an angry person. And I'm not even mad at the people who don't agree with me about this subject. Uh, however, I'm very convicted that this is um, something that we should be doing, which is protecting the lives of those children. They're the most vulnerable, the most innocent, the ones who can absolutely not protect themselves and and they are they are human beings and so uh, so I feel very strong about it I just think Republicans should say how they feel about it I think they ought to be happy to say you know like I say look if you I, I realize there are a lot of people that don't agree with me and I kind of understand that people agree to disagree but this is something that's important to me this is where I am on it and we will advocate for that in this state. Our legislature is is in the same place. The people of Tennessee, I think, generally are in the same place. And it's one of those examples I said earlier where democracy beautifully works out for, um, for people with different opinions. There will be states that have and protect the right for someone to get an abortion, but there will be states like Tennessee that believe that protecting the life of the child is the way to go. And one of the things that, that was kind of amazing in watching the original political response is, first of all, the lie that suddenly abortion had been banned literally everywhere in the country. The media tried to provide yeah. that. Um, but, but then there was the, the kind of move toward, well, this is a great electoral issue for Democrats. Democrats are definitely going to win on this. They're going to sweep the nation. There'll be, uh, people will be so excited to get out to vote on the Democratic side of the aisle that it'll completely shift the election. I said at the time, I, I don't see how that's going to work, considering that literally all law on this issue is going to be made at the state level. So what ramifications precisely does that have for the House or the Senate? And it turns out that most states have populations that are fairly clear-cut about what they want, and it's pretty obvious about just how far you can go. Tennessee can go further in terms of protecting human life and get away with it electorally than, for example, Florida can, which is a much more purple state on the issue. And you know, both of those states are going to be you know, significantly more conservative on the issue than New York, which is going to allow you to abort children until they're 97 years old mm -hmm. and outside the womb. So, the, so you know, all of that is to say that, that the, the sort of localist viewpoint, once enacted, actually defangs the issue in a lot of ways. And this is something that, that the left has refused to, to acknowledge, is that what Roe v. Wade actually did was it made the issue significantly hotter. It actually it locked into place a one standard for the entire country. And that standard was a violation of the moral precepts of at least half the country. And I think uh, the other thing that people hadn't really thought that much about, or maybe they have, but uh, people before this whole uh, Dobbs decision most people already knew where they were on this issue, right? And they were voting on it anyway. It was a part of their election process anyway. Um, so the big shift in the way people voted 
And frankly, uh, the states that have the most Democrats, they had they lived in a state where it's going to be protected. So uh, not a lot of change for them politically. And I, I think that's why you're probably not seeing it having the effect on the election that people thought it would. People already knew where, where they felt on the, how they been felt about this issue, and they'd already been voting that way. So this issue tends to open up a, a sort of broader conversation that's been happening. It's really kind of fascinating on the right between sort of traditional conservatives and people who call themselves the new right. The traditional conservatives tend to be, I would say, more liberty-oriented, more into the belief that government should be involved in as little as humanly possible. The new right, they say that they're there to promote the common good. And if we can use the power of government in order to promote the common good, then we will. So you as the governor of state, how do you draw that balance between you have the power to promote the common good, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you don't maximize the power of the government yeah. because the government does not. How do you decide where the government belongs and where the government yeah. does not belong? Well, there's that's the uh, that's the challenge of anyone in leadership, particularly in government. Um, I am philosophically a person that believes that less government is is better government. Um, there are exceptions to that rule, though, and there are times when uh, the government has to intervene or has an obligation, how about that? Has an obligation to intervene, um, for example, to protect children in, in certain instances or to, uh, for the common good, whatever that common good is. And it can't be just politically the common good. It has to actually be, it has to actually be for the health and well-being of people, for the lives and livelihoods of people, that kind of well-being. But those are hard decisions. I mean, because what one person calls the common good, the other person calls a principle and a freedom, uh, you know, a liberty that is ours. Um, the arguments there make it all the more difficult. But that, that's why I say sometimes going back to reminding ourselves what is laid out and uh, clearly defined in the Constitution as rights and liberties and freedoms and the protection of such, if we just go back and remind ourselves of those and say, these are, these are things we know to be true, uh, everything else is up for debate. So when you look at the country, and we've talked a lot about federalism and differences between California and Tennessee, you know, what do you see as, as the future sort of principles that, that hold us together? This is one of the big questions people are asking these days, because it seems like there's a vast gap between not just governance strategies, but entire worldviews between California and Tennessee or New York and, and Texas. And it, it, a lot of people are worried the country is just going to fall apart, that in the absence of any sort of uni uniting principle, what exactly is supposed to hold us together other than the sheer inertia, inertia weight of, of the federal government itself? Well, I don't, think the, I don't think the federal government holds us together. Um, I, I'm sort of philosophical in this kind of answer. I tend to, because I haven't been in politics a long time, I, I, I tend to think that most Americans are not thinking about all of this stuff that we're talking about in a very, in a very big fashion every single day. Uh, there's a lot of times where I will go back to my, where I grew up and, you know, I go home on the weekends, we live on a farm and uh, there's, there are folks there in that community that are my friends that I know, and I'll be around with them. Farm guys that are farming, or guys that run a little business there, and I'll say, "What do you What do you think about? Have you heard anything about this, or what do you think about it?" And what I realize is that they don't think much about that. They haven't seen it. They don't know about it. Yeah, they have an opinion, but uh, it's much more it's much more broad to them than the nuances that most of us talk about that are in government and politics. I think Americans are really smart. I think Americans are remarkable people. This is a remarkable country. It's, it, it's amazing. It's, it's a blessed nation. And, and as such, I do think we Americans, are, we tend to stay on track. When this country gets too far over here or too far over here, we make a course adjustment. We've done it for 300 years, basically. Um, we make a course adjustment and we find ourselves moving down the path of a more perfect union. And every time we make that adjustment, we become a little bit more of a perfect union. I, I believe that about this country. I'm very optimistic about it. I don't think we're going to crash and burn. Uh, I think we're 
going to make the decisions that we have to make as people. I think that states will jostle around and people will find out, you know, where this is happening and that's happening. Things will change. Populations will change. Demographics will change. They have throughout the history of our country for the last couple hundred years. That'll continue to happen. I'm very optimistic about this country. We'll find leaders that unite. I think we're at a highly divisive moment right now, but I actually think people are hungry for, um, not for a compromise of principles, but for uh, a more civil debate. And uh, I, I think when there's overreach, the people respond to that overreach. I think we've seen overreach on the left. Americans are about to respond to that in a couple of weeks. Pretty optimistic myself. So what do you make of the, the harsh media push for, for sort of the alarmism? And the, the, the theme has been for the past several years, really since Trump's election in 2016, that we're on the, the death of democracy, right? This is the, the pitch that Democrats are, are making across the country. They can't obviously pitch their economic record. So it's become, if you elect Republicans, democracy will die. If you elect Republicans, this, uh, the fascists will have arrived. If, if we lose this election, there might not be another election. And, and how can you value your pocketbook over, over things like our republic, capital O, capital R? Okay, well, what, what exactly are we supposed to do in the face of these predictions? Is that, is that a media creation? Well, divisiveness is a great desire of the media. It's very interesting, right? Divisiveness sells. Divisiveness is interesting. People like to read you know, people fighting, and people like to watch a debate that's just contentious. And yeah, uh, it's a, Divisiveness is a very valuable tool in entertainment and media. Um, for whatever reason, I don't know why that our human nature is attracted to that, but it is. It's exciting. It's divisive. That's a strategy. I think that to the degree that they that there is an ability to create division and divisiveness, it will always create more and more of that. You know, interesting story, and so I, I think there's a real intentionality there. Now you can you can have all sorts of. Um, evil intent discussions about that? And is there really a desire to break up something that is that we hold sacred? I don't know, but I know that um, divisiveness is interesting and people pursue it. And I think it's actually very harmful for our country. I think, and I think Americans, I don't know for sure about this for certain, but I think Americans, regular everyday Americans would be very attracted to the idea of um, principal decency in this country. That's something that we, I believe, we desperately need. So in a second, I want to ask you what's on the agenda for the next term, assuming, as you will, that you will win the governor's seat again. Our conversation is going to continue with all of that for our Daily Wire Plus members. If you'd like to hear that full conversation, click the link at the top of the episode description and join us over at dailywireplus.com. <laughs>